welcome to Bible study. Today, Nick is absent. He had something he had to do. But we do have a very intelligent and happy panel. And I hope you enjoy this study with us. So our facilitator today is Helen. Hi, Len. Lovely to be here and uh, to speak to each one of you today. And I'm sure we're going to have a great study. Yes, we are happy, but our wisdom comes from God. And Harvey? Hi, everyone, and thanks for the fact that we can be here today again. And Lydia? Hi, everybody. And I'm Len, of course. Now, Helen, as I said before, is going to be our facilitator. And from this point on, she will take over. Helen. Thank you, Len. Our last study that we had covered an overview of the book of Acts. And among the lessons from the book of Acts, one is that the apostles and the disciples fulfilled the purpose for which Christ commissioned and appointed them. The key to their success was that it was not in their own power, but in the power of the living God. Irresolution, indecision, weakness of purpose found no place in their efforts. They were willing to spend and be spent. And like the apostles, we are to labour as men and women who have a living connection with God. And before we go any further, Harvey's going to lead us in prayer. Thank you, Harvey. Dear Lord, we thank you that we can be here today, that we can study your word, and we pray that the Holy Spirit that caused it to be written in the first place will be here to enlighten our minds and to give us the wisdom that we need for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's have a quick review panel of last week's study. You mentioned perhaps maybe each of you would take one of these aspects that we covered last week. Single words. Can we just go around the group and have you say that? Well, Thank one you. of the things that I found very interesting that the apostles or the disciples, they were some apostles, were told to wait. And that's a good thing because sometimes we try to force God into a corner and get God to act, but things may not be ready for God to act. So waiting is an important thing. Thanks, Len. And the second one I think could be watching. Just be on alert. It means not watching passive, but watching active. That's great. So we're not asleep while we're waiting. Yes. Thanks, Richard. And there's another W, working, that they were working towards what God wanted them to do. So were they earning their salvation, Harvey? Absolutely not. <laughs> Great. Have we got any other things that came out of last week? Any As other aspects? we are working, we have to witness Great. to all those around us. So is witnessing. Fantastic. Well, I'll come back to the first one about waiting. Why were they waiting? Were they waiting for the sake of waiting? No. They were waiting for something to happen because Jesus had promised that the comforter would come and that the instructions were to wait, and they did, and they were expecting him to come. Fantastic. Thank you. Are there any more from last week? Jesus commissioned us to be his ambassadors in whatever we do, wherever we go, to be his ambassadors, and not through our power, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, great. So they had a commission. Yep. Is that right? Yes. Okay. And there's one very important aspect that I believe came out, and we're actually going to discuss it more today. But, panel, what would that be? The promise. They had been given the promise of power ah, from the Holy Spirit. And that's power, the one I wanted. Power yes. is the word dunamos. And dunamos 
means explosive, like in dynamite. And uh, the power was going to be given, but they were told to wait until they received it. Yeah, even the word power, it comes through as being very explosive and dynamic. I remember years ago singing uh, in a group the um, the hymn, There is Power in the Blood, and there was a lady sitting behind, and when it came to the chorus, every time she said the word power, it sounded like an automatic rifle went off. She would go, power, power. And I thought about that and in relation to last week's lesson, and I thought, but that's what it is, isn't it? It's not mm. power. It's not being very meek. It's power, and that's dynamite. That was an explosion, wasn't it? There is a song which we sing all the time. There is power, power, wonder-working power yep, in the Yep, that's the one. That's the yes. one. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to talk about this power today as well, and we're going to have a look at the upper room scenario, but Harvey, you've got something to say. It's a bit of a coincidence, Helen, because as a teacher, I would take worship with the kids in the morning, and we would sing the song, and we called that the explosion song, and wow. it's the exact one. Yeah, that is so, so true, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, so in the upper room scenario, there were some actions. What was to happen while they were waiting? Len, well, you, you've been talking about waiting, so what was to happen? Well, Jesus promised that they would receive the Holy Spirit and that when that occurred, they would have power that they didn't have before and that power would result in witnessing of Jesus the risen Saviour and the way that these people could be saved and indeed that all happened. Fantastic and if I remember reading it had extraordinary results that word extraordinary the extra part went in the front because they had that extra power didn't they? Instead of being just ordinary they became extraordinary. Lisha you wanted to say something? Yes they were all gathered together in the upper room so the upper room was for them like a place to meet God yes we're going to come back to that yes Yes, we're going to come back to that if you can hang on to that thought yeah for a little while they were Mm -hmm. uh, they were um, together in fervent prayer Mm -hmm. um, sincere repentance and praise yes, to God. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Now, Len, you mentioned last week an uh, um, analogy with a car moving out of gear. Would you like to hear it again? I think so. Let's <clears> just bring that in, please. It seems very much to me that the Holy Spirit is in our lives shows up in two ways. Number one is when we are convicted of truth and we commit our lives to the Lord Jesus, Right. But there seems to be another level where God allows people through the Holy Spirit to do extraordinary things. And I think the disciples had what I'd call the first level of the Holy Spirit beforehand. Part of that is committing your life to the Lord. But then there was second gear, if you like, or top gear, where they had this power that they didn't have before in order to witness. Yeah, thank you, Len. Yes, I I thought about that last week when we were discussing this. I remember, oh, many years ago in my youth, 
um, somebody tried to teach me how to ride a motorbike. Well, it was a small scooter I started on. And I remember we were at a racetrack and I went round the whole lap and I was so, so um, pleased with myself, you know, like, look, look. Until the owner of the scooter said, well, next time you go around, can you change up a gear? I had gone round in one gear. So were the disciples ready now to move to the next gear? I believe they were because when the Holy Spirit was given to them, they'd had all these experiences which were now coming back to them via the Holy Spirit. For a start, they'd learned at the feet of Jesus. They'd spent three and a half years with him. They'd seen the miracles that he had performed. They'd heard directly the sermons that he had given and the words he had spoken to them. And many times they didn't quite understand it. But it got to the point where the Holy Spirit brought back to their minds the things that they had heard. They now began to understand and believe the prophecies that Jesus had quoted. And they had all witnessed his ascension. And I think one of the most important things is they'd got to the point in their lives where they were ready now to tell others about what they had been witnessing. Oh, thanks, Harvey. But they had to wait, didn't yes. they? How long and why did they have to wait? Well, <clears throat> while they were waiting, they didn't just sit there and, and look at the clouds floating by. They were actively involved in prayer. The question is, what did they pray about? I believe they prayed to dedicate their lives to the Lord I believe they prayed that the promised comforter would come, but part of that preparation is also looking at your own life and seeing what obstacles are there, what sins, if you like, or what choices have to be changed. And so this waiting was probably, a, in one way, a cleansing process. Mm, how long did they have to wait for, Lynn? Well, it was only 10 days. Mm -hmm. Only 10 days. I tell you, 10 days waiting can be a long time, though, can't it? It can be, but yeah. it doesn't have to be. No, but they needed that time. Okay, well, let's turn in Scripture. Could one of the panel please read Acts 1, because we're in our Acts, of course. Acts 1, verse 4 and verse 8. Thank you. Harvey, I think you've got it, haven't you? Yes. Mm-hmm. Verse 4, And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which, saith he, ye have heard of me. Then we go to verse 8. Mm -hmm. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And we've got verse 14 also. Alicia, have you got that? Yes, I do. Please, thank you. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Okay, so here we are, just doing a, a quick review of last week's study. In 10 days, they had to wait until Pentecost, until they were to receive the gift. You know, I remember opening gifts as a child. Each year... It was, it was such a thrill to rip open the brightly coloured wrapping paper, yank off the metallic bows, 
totally worth the wait, regardless of how many days had to be crossed off the calendar to reach that momentous morning. I can almost taste the anticipation. And I wonder, did the disciples experience a similar feeling waiting for the Holy Spirit, this gift, to arrive? As the hours ticked by and the days rolled on in the upper room, they must have been filled with anticipation for this promised gift for which they had no tracking number. So the gospel was to spread geographically as well, but where was it to go to? Jerusalem, Samaria, which is a mixed race of people, and to the Gentiles, the uh, uttermost part of the earth. Yeah. Far away. So there were the three sections. And, you know, I think it's interesting as we study Acts, we'll see that the book is actually divided into three sections. Acts 1 to 7 deals with Jerusalem and Judea. Acts 8 to 10 deals with Samaria. And 11 to 28, the uttermost parts of the earth. This week, we have an exciting experience that the disciples shared together and with us in Acts chapter 2. They obeyed, they stayed, they prayed, they praised. But let's just see what happened next. So if I can ask one of the panel to please read Acts 2, verse 1, and tell me what we notice in this verse. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Doing what? They were praying, as we know. Mm -hmm. They probably ate together. We don't know where they slept, but I imagine they all slept in separate places and they supplicated the Lord. They asked him yeah. for what he had promised. Yeah, thank you. And this is what Lucia brought out before. They were about to be set on fire by the Holy Spirit. You know, wouldn't it just be so great if we were on so on fire by the Holy Spirit that people would be drawn to see us burn for Christ, you know, burning in our hearts. Yes, Lucia. This is a process of a long period of time, the process of sanctification of our hearts and as it was there on hearts, didn't happen quickly, fast or uh, as a sudden, because they had a longer relationship with God. They, uh, in a chapter, in Acts chapter 2, verse 46, it says also that every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the, all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. It means they all the time they were at, uh, at the temple in other people's places uh, gathering together. Uh, studying the Word of God and praying and in this way the Holy Spirit cleansed their hearts, forgive their sins, empowered them and blessed them with the Holy Spirit to be ready for this for the job that God was able to uh, encounter them. Mm. And next week we're going to study more about what happened. Yeah. Yes, thank you Lynn. Yeah, what that tells me is that these people were all singular in their purpose. And yet they were of one accord. Yes. Mm-hmm. Is that where you're coming from, Lee? That's what I'm saying. Yes. They weren't clones of each other, were they? No, no. Mm-hmm. But they all had the same purpose. Yes. You know, you find this um, in various situations. I was coming back from Western Australia once, 
um, we'd been visiting some relatives over there and um, a cyclone came down and all the roads, the dirt roads, which the road across the Nullarbor, the air highway was like at the time, and it just became a quagmire. And here you had people who had all different purposes stuck and the the uh, atmosphere, I don't mean the air, but the feelings amongst the people, they're all singular. We were all stuck and each one helped the others and it was quite an experience. Mm. And I believe the disciples were like that in this upper room experience. I'm thinking as you were talking then like a, a rope you know, if you have one strand, not quite as strong as having two or three, is it, together? Mm. Okay, let's let's um, go back to Acts two one. It mentions a day of what? There's a word there. What is it? Pentecost. Okay, what does it mean, Harvey? Well, I suppose it's like penta, which is five, but Pentecost really means fifty, and uh, was held fifty days after the ceremony of the wave sheaf, which was Passover. An annual feast, that's one of six, also known as the Feast of the First Fruits. Okay, so it memorialises what? What does the Passover uh, memorialise? Well, Did somebody tell me? The Passover was first instituted in Egypt, mm -hmm. just prior to the Israelites being delivered from Egypt. And so the word is they were delivered. Passover symbolises deliverance. Okay, so the angel of death passed over those that believed in God and had given their life. Is that, would that be a, a true statement? Mm-hmm. Okay. All right, so that's what Passover memorialises. What about Pentecost? It was a festival of what? What does the New Testament interpret the Passover as being? It's been fulfilled at the cross. Christ, our Passover, sacrificed for us. So instead Absolutely. of the sacrifice with the blood on the door that they had to do the Passover for us is symbolic by or was symbolized by Jesus shedding his blood for us great mm-hmm okay the annual feasts including Pentecost were instituted for two very important reasons can you help me here well it's a bit like Anzac Day why do we have Anzac Day it's to remember those who went before, who died or were injured, who bought our freedom with their lives. And I believe the Pentecost was a ceremony or a time when the Israelites remembered God's miraculous dealings throughout their history. And it also was to direct their minds to God's precious promises with regard to the future. Oh, thank you, Lynn. That's a great way of looking at it. Pentecost served a double purpose. It reminded the people of God's bountiful blessings during the harvest season, and it also pointed forward to that momentous day recorded in Acts 2 when the first great gathering of souls was added to the body of Christ. Okay, but this Pentecost day, this one was different. Something happened. What? Acts 2, verse 4. Have we got that? Somebody, please. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. Okay, so suddenly something happened, didn't it? 
I could imagine there would be an intensity um, at the scene, if you can just picture it. They heard audible si sounds in verse 2. What was the sounds like? Harvey, have you got that? It says, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. Wow, so none of us could, could uh, none of them there would have missed it, would they? Mm. Absolutely not. Yeah, like a rushing mighty wind. It reminded me when we were in Papua New Guinea, we, could, we got to the stage we could actually hear the rumble of the earth as the earthquakes were, were coming. And I see you're nodding your head there too, <laughs> Harvey. But it filled all the house. But there was also, sorry, Len, did you want to say something about that? Yes, I did. Yes, sorry. Um, my wife and family and I were... Um, visiting Darwin and they have a museum at Darwin dedicated to what happened with Cyclone Tracy and they had a recording of the wind and you could listen to the wind it was terrible wow. it was really terrible I don't believe that the sound that the disciples heard in that upper room was just a localised sound I think it was a sound that went right across Jerusalem because we read afterwards how that many people gathered around this particular area because they heard this loud wind. And so it was, uh, I think the wind was actually like an advertisement. Come here, something is going to happen. And it surely did. Wow. Exactly. I would, so, yes. I would like to say that in, in scripture, um, the wind and fire frequently are associated with a Tiffany or a divine manifestation. For example, we have lots of examples in the Bible. Um, in Exodus 3, uh, verse 2, and uh, chapter 19 and 18, in Deuteronomy 4:15. We have examples of wind and fire. So in addition to that, wind and fire also may be used to represent the, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. Okay, thanks, Lizzie. But there was also visible signs, wasn't there? Yes. Verse 3, what does verse 3 tell us? What was a visible sign? I'll read it. Thank you, Ming. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Right, so it appeared as tongues, cloven tongues like fire. And as Lizzie was saying, fire is power, glory purifying. Isaiah 6, 7, if you remember, we won't turn to it, but if you remember Isaiah's experience where he, as he saw the glory of the Lord and he said, I am a man undone. And there was a coal that the angel brought to Isaiah, touched his lips. It was an act of purifying symbolizing God's purifying presence which burns away the undesirable elements of our lives sets our hearts aflame to ignite the lives of others and of course tongues symbolize speech and the communication of the gospel but even though the fiery appearing tongues remained or sat upon them for only a brief time let me tell you that I believe the effects of the visitation lasted for the lifetime of the faithful Christians who received the, the spirit so verse 4, someone tell me how many were filled and with what? I'm sorry, Len, you wanted to say something. Uh, this has been very interesting to me. Why the manifestation, the, the visible manifestation of the Holy Spirit was seen as tongues or cloven tongues of fire? 
I've read about this many, many times, but it's never occurred to me why it was tongues, split tongues of fire. If you read through the Bible, fire represents the presence of God. For example, when Moses was out in the fields tending the sheep, he saw the burning bush and he was told as he approached there, don't come any further. The place where you are is holy ground. Take off your sandals. Then we have the giving of the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. There was smoke and fire coming off the mountain. We have the pillar of fire that signified the presence of God as the Israelites were being led through the desert. You had the situation with Elijah on Mount Carmel. That fire came down from heaven. And so, first of all, I see this, that fire signifies the presence of God. Yes. But then, why cloven? Split. Some versions of the Bible say fiery tongues that were split. And I thought, well, what on earth, what significance is that? It's, a snake's tongue is kind of split, but I didn't think it had anything to do with snakes. But if you go back to the book of uh, Deuteronomy, you can read the clean and unclean animals. God said, these things are clean, you can eat them, those are not. And all the clean ones chewed the cud and had cloven feet. So this is what I got out of all this. Fire is significant because it indicates the presence of God. The cloven tongues is significant because it represents the approval of God. Excellent. Thank you so much for sharing that, Len. Okay, so how many were filled and with what? All of them. All of them? That's Harvey? very interesting, you know, from a, a big group of people that w will always uh, meet together and be together and, you know, uh, and all of them to be chosen. This is amazing, you know. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. So... Uh, it's exciting, you know, yes. because nobody was left out from their group. Thank you. So, yes, Harvey? I think one of the things that's most important about this, about being all filled with the Holy Ghost, is that in actual fact, they were all there in one place, in one accord. There was no divisiveness or anything like that. They were there with one aim in mind, and that was to wait for the Spirit to come to them as it had been promised. They were all in one place of one accord. That's very, very true, Harvey. Thank you. And what a gift that brought, the sound of wind, tongues of fire, diverse languages into one place. A gift, my friend, purchased with the currency of blood, tears and sacrifice. And this was not just a mere moving of the Spirit. It was not merely the breath of the Spirit. It was an infilling of the disciples, complete possession of them, by the Holy Spirit. And so while Pentecost is a significant event in church history, we must not make the mistake of assuming that the work of the Spirit began only on that day. 
Why do I say that? The Spirit has always been at work. Its influence on God's people in the Old Testament times was often revealed in a notable way, but never in its fullness. I had somebody say to me, the, the time the Holy Spirit came was only at Pentecost. He wasn't here before. And um, I'd actually like to dispute that. Can anybody give me some examples from the Old Testament, please? Well, in your research, you did the same research that I did. <laughs> I looked up the concordance and I looked up the words Spirit of God. Numbers 24.2 talks about Balaam. And Balaam lifted up his eyes and he saw Israel abiding in his tents according to their tribes. And the Spirit of God came upon him. He was hired to curse the Israelites. But the Spirit of God came upon him and he ended up blessing them. And then in Judges chapter 6 verse 34 talks about the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. And at 1 Samuel 16 verse 13 it says the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. And there are plenty of other references which we haven't given to say that the Spirit of the Lord came upon various Old Testament individuals. Thank you, Len. Yes. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are eternally present, co-eternal, co-existent, and co-equal. We see the plurality of three persons and the singularity of one purpose. As these disciples had one purpose in that upper room, so too we see that um, in the Godhead. But Luke mentions the Holy Spirit quite a bit, actually, some 55 times in the book of Acts and leading some scholars to describe this book as the gospel of the Holy Spirit. The early church was indeed a spirit-filled church, and so must today's church be. But let's go back to Acts, and let's have a look at... Um, okay, let's yeah. go back to Acts 2. I think I've got the wrong yes, text there. Acts Thank two. you. Thank you. Can somebody please read that? They began I mean, to what? What did uh, they do? Uh, they began to speak. In yes. A, that's speak well. in other different languages. Yes, thank you. So they spoke with other tongues, yes. different from their native speech. Yeah. And, you know, if you look at the whole scene in verse 5, who were assembled at Jerusalem at that time? Because it was the Passover, or not long from the Passover, it was after the Passover, there were Jews from all over. They were listed. There's a whole lot of different countries uh, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, Libya, Cyrene, Rome, etc., etc. Mm -hmm. So there were people from all over. And because they were from all over the place, they didn't all understand the same language. Okay. But when mm -hmm. the disciples started to speak, they heard it in their own language. Okay, we're and going to discuss that. Yeah. Yeah, they actually heard it in their own language. So, really... Um, you could really say that Christianity is not limited to any race or group. Would you agree? Yes, yeah, of course. Yeah, Christ offers salvation to all people without regard to nationality. But Acts 2, 6 and 8 makes it clear it was not an unknown ecstatic language. The word language and tongue in these two verses, uh, that's Acts 2, 6 and 8, are from the Greek word dialekitos meaning a mode of discourse that is dialect, a language, a tongue. Now, I'd like to ask the panel, some have suggested to me that the miracle of Pentecost was a gift to hear. Huh. What would you say to that? Well, if it was a gift to hear, why was there necessity to have all these different languages? That seems a bit silly. 
what I imagined was here this crowd gathered around because of this loud noise of a rushing wind and they were around the disciples came out and started speaking and I imagine that different people groups gathered to different ones who were speaking their own uh -huh. language uh -huh. otherwise there would be no necessity for the languages it would be a gift that would be given to the people who were listening rather than those who were actually delivering the message that's true yes Harvey you mentioned before Helen about the fact that you heard earthquakes for instance uh -huh. in Papua New Guinea there was a minister a person a missionary went to Papua New Guinea and he had a gift when it came to languages because he could go into a village with a completely new language that he didn't know anything about and within two weeks he could preach in that language and he did that in about 60 different languages by the time he'd finished his period in Papua New Guinea. Mm. But he could learn the language almost instantly by language standards. Wow. Yeah. That work to me was a gift, without yes, a doubt. Yes, absolutely. I, I, have, I have a question. The question is, and you spoke to this earlier, Helen, but I'm not sure if I totally agree. Did the disciples who were given this gift at Pentecost retain it for the rest of their lives. As far as I'm concerned, there's no record in the New Testament of anybody ever using those languages again, apart from the gift was given to Cornelius. Was it, no, was it Cornelius? Anyhow, uh, and his group when, when they were converted. I... Uh, have sometimes wondered about people who claim to have the gift of tongues. I did hear a story of uh, some people who went across to also Papua New Guinea from Australia who hired an interpreter because they wanted to speak to this remote people group up in the highlands. After about two meetings, the people spoke to the interpreter and said, why, why are you interpreting? because we are hearing the speaker in our own language. After these Australians got back to Australia, they couldn't say a word in that particular language or dialect, whatever it was. So I'm not sure, and I don't know if anybody can prove one way or the other that they retained this gift for the rest of their lives. It was given the purpose of reaching the people at that time my question is unanswered as far as I'm concerned in answer to that I'd like to share um, both Len and Harvey have shared a couple of testimonies from other people and thank you for that but I'd also like to share one that happened to me here in Australia and um, I was privileged to, to learn sign language and to spend time in the deaf community. And I had a friend that came to me one day and said, would you um, come and interpret? We want to have some studies. Would you please interpret? Now, I was not a, a full interpreter at that stage. And certainly in the course that I was doing, they didn't teach me anything to do with Bible signs. 
And four of us went along and we went out visiting and we had a list of names. We went to one person's place. It was so small, only two of us could be in the room with him at, at the one time. And when we went in and uh, this gentleman was deaf and I explained to him why we were there, he stopped me from signing or speaking and he very forcibly um, indicated that he wanted prayer first. So he pointed to the friend that was going to do the studies and said, you pray, and he pointed to me and he said, you sign. And I signed to him, I can't, I don't know the signs for praying. And he said again to the gentleman, he said, you pray, you sign. And I didn't know what to do, And but he was getting quite agitated. And my friend said, I'm going to pray. He said, you just better start signing. And I sent a plea up to God at that moment. I said, Lord, please take over my hands, take over my mind and my hands. The interesting thing is that I signed through that prayer. At the end of it, I indicated to the man, I said, I signed to him, did you understand what I signed? And he nodded, yes. And I said, write it down. And I had actually signed the, the signing um, for heaven, God, Holy Spirit, blessings, and I had signed all these signs to do with Christianity and I had not been taught them. It was really, it was just a humbling, amazing experience. When we got out to the car, my friend told the other two in the car what had happened and he said, I have just witnessed speaking in tongues, mm. but it was through this. And because um, Ausland is, you know, sign language, it is a language. And my, my husband said to me, he said, what's the sign for Jesus? I said, I haven't got a clue. Mm -hmm. I didn't know, but God used it at that point. And, and Len, I think there's a lesson for us too. Yes. I was just indicating how much time we've got left. Wow, is not it gone fast? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think yes. there is a, a good lesson there, that God will use us and give us special gifts for special purposes. Unlike what many people who claim to have the gift of tongues, which I believe in most cases is not a true gift from God, they sort of say they have it for life. But I think God gives special gifts. Like Samson had special power at the moment when he pushed the pillars of that pagan temple and, uh, well, he never had it afterwards because he got killed, of course, but I think he was given for that occasion. That's the way I think of it, although I don't know definitively whether that's right or not. Mm. Acts 2.38 says it was the gift of the what? The gift of the Holy Spirit, wasn't it? Yes. Okay, not so much the gift of tongues, because gift of tongues is, is one gift among many, and not all of us receive the same gift except the gift of, of faith. We need to move on very quickly. Um, it was interesting, some hearing the disciples that day accused of them of being what? <laughs> Drunk. Drunk. Wow, okay. So Peter used this um, as an opportunity to what, Harvey? Well, explained to them about the Holy Spirit, mm -hmm. but also said... They're not drunk because it's only the third hour of the day, mm -hmm. nine o'clock in the morning. So it's not what you would expect people to be at that time of the day. And so he was really saying how the it was the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Mm, and he was talking about fulfilling prophecy. What was that prophecy, Harvey? I think it was in Joel 2, wasn't it? Yes, I can read it. Um, Joel 2, 28 and 29. 
And it's interesting as we go through, there is just a slight difference between what Joel's prophecy was and what Peter was saying. Yes, I can read it. Mm -hmm. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. Mm-hmm. So Joel was just saying it came to pass afterward, and Peter in Acts two seventeen says it came to pass shall come to pass in the last days. So the inference is what? The time was the last days. Fantastic. Absolutely. Yeah. So what days? Now. What days are we in now? Wow. The, the last, last days. Yes. <laughs> they were actually seeing prophecy fulfilled right before them, wasn't there? Yes. Okay. So Peter was converted. He was filled by the Holy Spirit. Instead of uncertainty, there is conviction. Instead of fear, there is boldness. Instead of hasty words, as in the Gospels, there is detailed, well-reasoned discourse. Peter had been an unstable leader during Jesus' ministry, letting his bravado be his downfall, even denying that he knew Jesus. But Christ had forgiven and restored him. Here was a new Peter, one that was humble but bold. His confidence came from the Holy Spirit, who made him a powerful and dynamic speaker. Len, is there a lesson for us in this today? There certainly is. It's this. Have you ever felt as if you've made such bad mistakes that God could never forgive and use you? No matter what sins you've committed, God promises to forgive you and make you useful for his kingdom if you let him. Allow him to forgive you and use you effectively to serve him as these disciples did. Absolutely. I guess our time's almost over, but just very quickly, um, Lydia, would you just read out? After highlighting the prophetic significance of Pentecost, Peter turned to the recent events of Jesus' life, death and resurrection. It is the resurrection, however, that received greater emphasis as it represented the decisive factor in the gospel story. For Peter, the resurrection was the ultimate vindication of Jesus, as is quoted, um, and he quoted scripture to help uh, make his point about the meaning of the re uh, resurrection in Acts chapter 2, verse 22 and verse 27. Because Jesus was the Messiah, he could not be detained by death. So for Peter and for all the writers of the New Testament, the resurrection of Jesus had become powerful evidence, not only of Jesus as the Messiah, but for the whole Christian message of salvation. So Peter's presentation, the main point was who? Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, that's correct. And Acts 2.33 enables us to see there is a connection between Jesus' ascension and what? Acts 2.33, what does it show us the connection? Jesus' ascension meant that the Holy Spirit could come. There's a special thing about this because Jesus could not, while he was man be in two places at once but the Holy Spirit could not just two uh, the word is omnipresent he could be at all places at once and affect as many people as were willing to be 
affected by him. Yeah, I think that text says it was expedient that Jesus said it is expedient that yes. I go away. Yeah. So the Holy Spirit could come. Lydia, have you got John seven thirty nine, please? Yes, I do. John seven thirty nine. It says, "By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive." Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Okay, so the point is that the Holy Spirit could not fully come if Jesus was not glorified or exalted. And Harvey, have you got John sixteen seven there, please? Yes, just before I read that, mm -hmm. um, Jesus, or Peter actually, was emphasizing the resurrection. When you consider that the life, death, and, and resurrection of Jesus, ultra important, but the greatest evidence of victory that Jesus had was that he actually rose. If he hadn't risen, the victory would not have been. Mm -hmm. He had to rise to actually get the full victory. Which brings us back to a point last week when they were watching Jesus ascend and um, they would see him come in, in like manner. Yes. He was going as a victor, wasn't he? Absolute victor. Yes. Okay, now John sixteen seven. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. So the Bible calls the Holy Spirit counsellor and comforter. As comforter, he took Jesus' place, and as counsellor, he directs and guides each individual. But, you know, there was an interesting reaction for some people after Peter's speech, and I believe there was an important question they asked. Acts 2.37. Would someone share that, please? Acts 2.37. Yes, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What a question. There was a question in the Bible, what shall we do to be saved? What shall we do? Len, there is a lesson for us, please. Well, this is the basic question we must ask. It's not enough to be sorry for our sins. We must let God forgive them. And then we must live like forgiven people. This was the cry of a contrite heart. May it be our cry also. Ask God what you should do and then obey. Thank you, Len. That's an important question to ask him, isn't it? What shall we do? Now, Acts 2.38 gives us two basic requirements for forgiveness. Can someone tell me what those two basic requirements are? Well, it says in the text, to repent... That, of course, means to be sorry, and then to be baptised, which is an indication of a changed life. Thank you. So repentance means a radical change or a direction of your life, a turning away from sin, rather than just simply a feeling of sadness or remorse. We've got two great examples of that in Scripture. We have Judas, who um, had a feeling of sadness and, or remorse, or we have Peter, who had true Repentance. It was a radical change in his life. So I believe there's also another lesson here. Yes, it's this. To repent means to turn from sin, changing the direction of your life from selfishness and rebellion against God's laws. At the same time, you must turn to Christ, depending on him for forgiveness, mercy, guidance and purpose. 
We cannot save ourselves. Only God can save us. Absolutely. Together with faith, true repentance is a gift of God. But like all gifts, it actually can be rejected. We have a choice. Okay, so we you mentioned two there as to those two basic requirements, repent and be baptism. Mark 1, 4 talks about this. Well, it's talking about the... Uh, about John the Baptist and it says and so John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins now you will notice there what he preached he preached about repentance and he baptized people when it's no good just repenting and leaving it there you have there has to be a change, a coming right, if you like. So baptism, would you say, is an outward sign of an inward change? I agree wholeheartedly. Mm-hmm. Okay. So baptism also identifies us with Christ and with the community of believers. There's a lesson for us here. It's a condition of discipleship and a sign of faith. Okay. So... Harvey, do you want to add to that? Yes, the people at Pentecost were offered not only forgiveness of sins, but also the fullness of the Spirit for personal growth, for service in the church, and especially for mission. This was perhaps the greatest of all blessings, for the main reason the church exists is to share the good news of the gospel. Thank you, thank you. It's it's uh, an amazing study that we're we're having through this week on this very topic but it's I believe it's reinforced three aspects of the Holy Spirit preparation needed for receiving the Holy Spirit they were in the upper room deep soul-searching prayer and supplication I believe we need that too they had spirit-filled preaching and that gave us three essentials on how they were preaching it was inspired the Spirit's power that empowered Peter to preach his first sermon. It had a foundation. It was able to connect the present with the past and point to the future. And there was content. And we discussed before that it was always about Jesus. And the results of their Spirit-filled preaching, question, what shall we do? My, my friend, preaching is not entertainment. It is not information doled out. It is talking about this Jesus leading people to his cross, showing his wounds, describing his triumph, offering hope and inviting them to accept him as their Lord and Saviour. And that, my friend, is what we want to do today. We want to offer you hope. We want to invite you, listener, to accept him as your Lord and Saviour. Len, did you want to say something? Yes, I did. You know, we were talking about repentance and then baptism, mm -hmm. as Peter spoke to the people. But Peter actually told the people where they had gone wrong. Remember, these were Jews that pre Peter was preaching to or talking to. And it was through the Jewish leadership that Jesus' death was actually uh, accomplished there is a better word, but I just can't think of it at the moment. And um, the Romans 
actually crucified Jesus, but it was only because the Jewish leadership had presented Jesus as um, a felon, although he wasn't. And so Peter, in talking to the people, had said, this Jesus whom you crucified. And I think a lot of them, after Jesus was crucified and rose again, probably felt pretty bad about the whole thing. And so their nerves, if you like, were raw with this on their conscience, that we as Jews were responsible for the Saviour's death. And so that, I think, was one of the things, besides any personal sins that they might have been concerned about. Mm. That's so true, so true, Lynn. You know, the Holy Spirit, listener, is the personal presence of Christ to the soul. The arrival of the Holy Spirit to the house ignited, motivated the hearts of the believers with an immense passion to drive their ministry forward, to fulfill the commission that Christ had given them. And the Spirit came to fill the souls that were empty and hopeless. He came to help guide hearts and minds back to the Father. He came to set his people on fire. You know, with Christ, there is endless hope. Sadly, without him, it is a hopeless end. We have a choice. Lydia, there is a lesson here for us. Would you share that with us, please? Now everyone can receive the Spirit. We need to be praying, studying, and sharing with one accord so that we too can experience the feeling of the Holy Spirit even today. I pray that will be our experience. I pray, listener, it will be your experience as you go through the coming weeks. Our start, next study, we'll be looking at the life of the early church and we will see the power of the Holy Spirit working in the early church. Thank you, panel. Thank you, Helen, for leading us. I would just like to say this before we close today. Probably some of you listeners are thinking, well, should I pray to receive the Holy Spirit? You may know somebody who claims to have the Holy Spirit. My answer to you is, Yes, pray for the Holy Spirit, but don't pray how the Holy Spirit should be demonstrated in your life. It seems to me, first and foremost, if you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, you will become a good, obedient servant of God, willing to share your faith. It doesn't mean to say that you're going to perform miracles or anything like that. So pray for the Holy Spirit as did those disciples back there roughly 2,000 years ago. He will give us the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Yes. Well, that's it for today, listeners. Thank you for your, uh, uh, your attention, and we trust that this study will be of benefit to you and uh, as it has been to us.
See?